This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. This week, Tom Stokes in Navan County Meath moved his partner and two children out of their emergency accommodation and into a council house that was boarded up but fully decorated and functioning. For some, it highlighted how apparent bureaucracy creates housing bottlenecks. For others, that media hysterics over individual cases distorts the complex causes of the housing crisis. Is the problem as bad as we think and what creative solutions could get us out of the mess? In studio, Lurkin Sir is a lecturer in housing at DIT, Carl Dieter is from Irish Mortgage Brokers and Dermot Lacey is a Dublin City Labour Party councillor. Now, this is very much a private sector problem and a public sector problem and we want to discuss the public sector first. So on the line is Valerie O'Sullivan, she's Director of Housing with Cork City Council. Good morning, Valerie. Good morning, Sarah. Um, Now, Valerie, one of the things you highlighted a little while ago is the significant refusal rate uh, from people who are on housing lists when they're actually offered a house. In Cork City Council, you said it was 48%. Why are people who are on the housing list refusing houses? Um, Okay, well, at the outset, I suppose it's important to say that there is um, a supply and demand issue on the social housing side because we haven't been producing new units for a number of years, obviously, during the recession and when funding wasn't available. However, we need to have a definition of the word crisis when we're applying it to the housing situation on the social side in particular because is the 48% refusal rate, does it indicate dire need in crisis? And that is a good question. And this is an average refusal rate at the time. It peaked at 61%. Um, so for every offer we made, 61% at one point of those offers were refused. The reasons why people refuse, uh, we would always ask that because people's uh, time on the list will be deferred for a period of 12 months after a refusal and if they're sure about refusing. So we do get in the reasons. And some examples of recent reasons, even after I spoke, I spoke to the press that time, mm. was we had a person refuse a one-bedroom apartment recently because there wasn't a second bedroom available in it, this is a single person, for when his ex-partner might visit. We had another refusal uh, because the school near the new house that we were offering was a half a mile away. And we had one this week because the garden was too small and the uh, quantum of storage space inside the house was insufficient. So it can vary and also in Cork and I'm sure in other big urbans as well, it's not near enough to the um, the family home that where a person grew up. So the, the refusal reasons, um, we, get, we get everything really. Okay, now your list was originally 9,000 and you, right. you, you cut 3,500 from it in one swoop. How did you do that? Um, I suppose everybody operating um, as a housing practitioner on the social side would have felt for years that the list was falsely inflated. So we were dealing with um, an unreliable data set in terms of demand. And we would know that from our experience and uh, anecdotally. But we didn't have a system to prove that, if you like. So the data, while we knew as practitioners, we couldn't actually back it up with data. So we introduced um, a choice-based letting scheme, which is an online means of expressing your interest in a house. And once you express it, uh, you're pinned to it. So in other words, um, you either accept it then, you were very sure. The offer then we make is only to people who have expressed an interest. Um, And in order to set that up, we needed to get all of those 9,000 people on a PIN number 
so that they could actually access the system. So we made contact with every one of them uh, at least three times, if not more. And of that 9,000, only um, just around 5,000 actually responded and succeeded in um, being interested in getting a, a PIN number. So this is this, housing is very political, particularly locally, as you can imagine, elected members are very interested. So there was a lot of um, time and reasonable effort made and given to people to access PIN numbers and engage with us uh, to the point where we had to cut it off and say, well, actually, there's just over 5,000 who are actually interested and the rest were dropping from the list. Now, it's not that they went into a black hole. We have them as well, uh, so that if they ever contacted us, they could, of course, rejoin the list. But the world didn't fall apart. We operated with a list of 5,500 and all was well. Now, that has come back up to this month, the end of March, um, a live housing list of 6,148 applicants. How many houses does Cork City Council, or I should say housing units maybe, directly manage? Yeah, we have about... um, over eight and a half thousand units at the moment. Right. Okay, it's a lot. And it's then, a lot. Um, and how many would be boarded up? You know, while one person vacates it and you're doing it up before another person can move in. At the minute, the number of houses we have shuttered is 137. Okay. And we would have another cohort then, not as big as that, um, that are vacant and possibly boarded up or not because we are operating a, a huge regeneration scheme on the northwest of the city. So those houses are earmarked, earmarked for demolition and replacement by new and improved units. So again, it's, I suppose while you wouldn't want any houses to be <laughs> vacant ever, in terms of a landlord managing just shy of 9,000 houses, that is an expected level of vacancy. Um it, to be fair, yeah, you know, I know. Out of out of what did you say, eight and a half thousand? Yeah, it's actually yeah. not that much. Okay, look, Dermot. I guess the big thing there is establishing what is the extent of the crisis and that refusal rate. Being able to cut the housing list. Do you think it's a similar situation in Dublin City? I do, but let's first of all state the real fact: there are thousands of families in need of accommodation. And, you know, we can tinker around, we can look at the causes, we can identify where the list can be reduced, but we need a huge number of additional housing units uh, at a social level and an affordable level. So just, you know, we should be clear about that because we shouldn't be making excuses. There is a real problem and that has to be dealt with. Uh, There's lots of reasons why people wouldn't be on the list uh, or would remove themselves from the list. They may have got alternative accommodation. They may never actually want city council accommodation, but you have to go on the list in order to get a rent allowance. That's a real problem. People are quite happy, you know, in in their rent allowance paid. uh, Would you you change that rule? Because obviously that distorts the demand. I I, I would, of course. I mean, part of the problem is that I think in Ireland, housing has been driven by two ideological opposites. Uh, the right seem not to want any social housing or see a need for the state's invention. Some people on the left believe that the only way you can provide housing is through, uh, you know, city council and uh, direct provision. You know, I think we need a, a mixture of a whole lot of things. And I suppose one of the things I'd feel for is that on the housing issue, we sort of leave ideology aside. Uh, I'm in favour of Dublin City Council building more housing. I'm in favour of the state giving more funding and I welcome the fact that Alan Kelly, who gets a lot of stake, 
did ensure that funding was made available. But I'm also in favour of local cooperatives. I'm in favour of local voluntary housing associations. I'm in favour of assisting people on the affordable level. We need all of those things. We just don't need and only when, one of them. And when people refuse a house when they're offered it, now, so would you give them maybe two strikes, three strikes? What would you do no, and then Sarah, say, I'm I, sorry? I think that's sort of a bit of an arrogant position for people to take. You know, I have a right to, you know, live where I want to based on what sort of income that that, that I have. And, uh, you know, I want my children to go to my local school, the school that their, their friends go to and so forth. And I think the same is true for uh, social housing applicants. And, you know, a home is more than just a wall, a roof and a couple of windows. A home is also where you want and feel happy bringing your children up, uh, where you feel safe. And, you know, I have occasionally, not often, occasionally said to people, look, I wouldn't really take that particular flat because you might be a single uh, woman and it might be particularly yeah, rough area. Yeah, but Dermot, I, I live in Enfield, which is a commuter belt town filled with people who have had to move there far away from their families because they couldn't afford a house in Dublin. Yeah, I, I, you know, they don't have it. But, it, but a it's right. about Sarah resolving problems and trying to find a way through the problems. It's not saying just because somebody else has to do something bad, everybody <laughs> else has just a bit. That's what I'm saying to you. It's not a question of an either or. We have to resolve the problems. You know, some people are quite happy to live, you know, in in other areas. Some people are not. I think, for example, we have massively underused the rural resettlement programme where people, you know, would like to move and live sort of newer lives down the country. But we make everything really awkward in this country to do everything. And I just, for the first time on this programme, and I'll probably say for the rest of my life, we need to stop the interference by the Department of the Environment on programmes and projects because it's that, and I hate, I really hate to use this word, but I can't think of another word, it's that ignorant interference and indeed incompetent ignorant interference that stops a lot of projects uh, taking place and a lot of resolutions And I'm, I'm going to come back to you on that about housing associations. Um, Carl, just on the matter of public housing, <coughs> mm-hmm. you know, what do you think is the problem there and what should be done about that? It's It's... A complicated one and it has a lot of different issues. Uh, There are some that I've looked at that I've wondered about in the past. For instance, you can qualify for social housing if you earn up to €35,000. €35,000 in this country is average wage. So you can be absolutely average and go on the housing list. According to the tax authority, if you make €35,000, you're actually getting into the well-off section of of our society because the highest tax rate kicks in at 33800 So like... You can actually be considered well-paid and still get social housing. Then when you do get social housing, you qualify for it for life. That tenancy is not based on the fact that you have an affordability issue. And we don't give people the dole when they lose a job and then give them the dole for life. You know, when you start to, to, to recover from it, you come off the dole. Uh, now, the way that they try to, to, to fix that is through a thing called differential rents. But what I can say is that the average rent in Dublin City, and there's 25,000 units in Dublin City, is about 59 euro a week. The maximum rent is 268. Uh, you, you, you can rent out a, a five-bed house if you qualify for it. For you know, I think the, the average rent on them is about 180 a week. You can't get a five-bed house almost anywhere in Dublin in the private sector for that. So there's this huge mismatch where qualifying for social housing is actually a really big deal. And if you get the right one, it can confer huge benefits on you. Um, so do you, are you saying that too many people are qualifying and that there are too many social houses? I don't think that there's too many. Uh, what I would say is that basically we've got too many people on 
the the ability to to hold a social house that probably don't need them. And even if you walk around anywhere in Dublin, any of the flats, I've been doing this for a while now, and I've been looking, for instance, at car regs just to see which cars are parked there early in the day, early in the evening, mm-hmm. to try and get an idea of, of the age of cars that people have. And a lot of them are actually newer, nicer cars than you get in new estates where people have given up so much. Now, I'm not saying people shouldn't have nice things. What I am saying is that we need to get social housing so that it can help uh, regenerate itself. And by that, what I'm saying is I think in many cases, differential rents need to be slightly higher uh, so that that can go towards social housing. And indeed, society-wide, we need to actually tax to create social housing. So, Lurkin, what do you make of that? Um, You know, that you qualify for a house and then you've got it for life and then maybe you even get to buy it. Well, yeah, I was just going to say, Sarah, it it actually gets worse. With uh, and, and Alan Kelly is guilty of this as well, promoting the idea of selling off our, our social housing, our council housing stock, which I think is a total waste of money. I mean, you spend an awful lot of time and effort building these social houses only to give them away at a discounted rate. I mean, that just doesn't make sense. The tenancies for life, um, we shouldn't... I, I mean, I'm not quite sure about that. I'm, we sh- these things are, are, are part of a process called asset-based welfare. You give someone an asset, in this case a house, and then it's hands off, look after yourself forever. And that isn't the way to do that. I mean, you, you should be giving people an asset until they get themselves back on their feet and then we move up, move them on through society. There's a few other issues uh, about the social housing that's really interesting. One is the waiting list in most counties is limited to your own county. So if you felt a need to go, so I'm living in Dublin, if I felt a need to move to Longford, I couldn't put myself on the housing waiting list in Longford because mm. I'm not entitled to it. That's wrong. I mean, the four local authorities in Dublin have, have a system now where you can kind of move between the, two, the four of them, which is good. That should be nationwide. It should almost be like a daft.ie for social housing where you can choose, because it might suit me and my family circumstances to move to Longford or Leitrim or Leitrim or Galway or Cork or whatever. I should be allowed to do that. Um, the other thing is about the rent supplement is a kind of a poverty trap. If you get work when you're on rent supplement, you lose your rent supplements. So how, how do people, you know, it, it makes it tricky for people to get work, particularly because there's zero hour contracts yeah. and... and or you know, you're not guaranteed a specific number of hours every week or part-time work and they're going to lose their rent supplements so they'll stay you know, not working. So how would you manage that? Because if we're saying that when you move into a social house then you have it, practically speaking, for life um, how do you then eventually take people off rent allowance if it's a bad idea to take it off them just because they get a job? You know what I mean? Well, in, in terms of the council house, uh, the council house and the rent supplement are two different things. Yes. Like the rent supplement yeah. would be in the private rented sector, which is a slightly, which is a different thing. The council house, I mean, that needs to be the, 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 the I suppose, the means or the, the, the wherewithal of the people in the council house needs to be reassessed every now and then. Now, you can't expect people to move in and spend thousands of euro doing up their houses and then whip it off them. But the council house should be given on the under, on the understanding that it's a transition period from, it might be one year, it might be 10 years, it might be 15 years. I'm not saying it's instant, but I'm saying that on the understanding that it might not be yours forever. And that the idea is that you kind of pull yourself up through the through the ranks of life and, and try and, you know, house yourself and yeah. take yourself off the, the need to be housed by the state. The other thing that we're not doing, and, and you saw me talk about this uh, last year, like in Ireland, you only rent or you own. And we've got no stepping stones for all those people uh, and kind of Carl touched on it there, all those people who earn too much money to be housed by the state, but not enough to house themselves. And there's a whole category of people in there called, kind of call them the precarious, they have a precarious existence. And, uh, you know, they might be on contracts or, or, or they earn X amount of money, but 
too much to be housed by by the council, but yet they, yet they can't afford either a rent or to or to own a property. Yeah, like people on that average industrial wage. I guarantee you all the young people out there are probably on contracts, and they go to get a mortgage and they won't get one because they don't have a, a you know a steady income and a permanent job. So they're going to end up renting. So you get a rent, which is quite a precarious existence in Ireland, or you own and people can't afford to own. And we're not thinking about the things that that Dermot was mentioning about cooperative housing or those kind of voluntary housing systems, or temporal ownership, which is what we were talking about last year. We're not thinking about all that space in between that we could fill with easily uh, created uh, systems of uh, allowing people to afford their own homes and to have security of tenure. Okay, actually, I have to take a quick break and I'll be back after these. Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108. Welcome back to Talking Point. We're talking about the housing problem this morning. We're trying to come up with some ideas in studio. Lurk and Sir, lecturer in housing at DIT, Carl Dieters from the Irish Mortgage Brokers, and Dermot Lacey is a Dublin City Labour Party councillor. And now on the line is Dr. Donald McManus. He's Chief Executive of the Irish Council for Social Housing. Donald, can you just first of all tell me, what is a housing association? Because I think people have it in their heads. You've got the county council builds houses, and then you've got private developers build houses. But a housing association seems to be something in between. Will you tell me about it? Thanks for asking me on. I think it's, it is important to, to paint a picture about social housing. That Traditionally, a lot of people in this country would have been familiar with council housing. Uh, and council housing would have provided, or provides now about 115,000 homes for social housing. Housing associations are, are non-profit housing bodies. Uh, they would have independent boards and they would uh, have staff to undertake their functions in relation to social housing. Now, throughout the European Union, there's about uh, 20 million homes provided by, by, by housing associations. And housing associations really initially complemented the role of the local authorities, provided initially special needs housing for specialist groups like the homeless, older people and uh, people with disabilities. But in the last 20 years, they've had a uh, stronger role in providing housing for families. So they, they complement the local role of the local authorities. And in more recent years, uh, non-profit housing associations, of which our members were a federation, of Housing Association or Umbrella Body. We have about uh, 270 members who collect, collectively manage uh, 30,000 homes. So if you look at local authorities uh, who built around a uh, third of a million homes over the years, but only now have about a third of those left, 100,000. Housing Associations provide <clears throat> about 30,000 homes and their role has increased, uh, especially in recent years, with new, new financing regimes. So in, in order to qualify for a Housing Association home, uh, housing Associations draw people off the local authority witness. So, for instance, in Dublin City Council, housing associations, whether it be the Ivy Trust, which is the oldest housing association in Ireland, even predates the formation of the state, and was set up in 1890 with support from the Guinness family. So those organisations like the Ivy Trust, Tua, Clude, even the McVeary Trust, would draw people from... Uh, the local authority witness. There's a very strong <coughs> link between housing and, associations. And, and when, when someone is allocated one of those houses, are they <coughs> renting it or do they have the opportunity to buy it? No, at the, mo- at the moment they rent it and yeah. there are affordable rents. The uh, Rents on average are about €55 Euro for, per week for families and for specialist groups they're probably about up to €80. Euro. So there are affordable rents and the area for, for housing associations is to try and cater for those people who can't afford to buy or can't afford to, to rent on the private open market. So, as I say, a housing association would be a very typical model throughout the European Union, and they would be supported a lot by public authorities, like for provision of sites and, and so forth. So, and, and we see, we always saw that uh, housing associations were underutilised in Ireland because of the dominant role of local authorities, but in years ahead, we can see a stronger role uh, for housing associations, because housing associations can bring to the table 
loan finance. Uh, in the past, a lot of housing associations were funded 100% from the state, like the local authorities. But in recent years, it's a new mixed funding regime uh, of uh, some state capital of 30% and 70% of loan finance. <clears throat> and in terms of the profile of housing association tenants, they do vary from uh, working-class families to elderly people. And more recent times, there were people in the social housing sector who, had, who previously had mortgages, who are unfortunate can't afford them anymore, and people have lost their homes through unemployment. So there's a broad space, but it is primarily rental housing at the moment. We are looking at, as a sector, other, other options like affordable rental for people who are kind of caught between home ownership and social rental. So okay. that's one so, area. So, Donald, what's blocking you from maybe building more houses or buying more houses? <laughs> is there one thing that you'd like to see change that would allow you to provide more homes? Well, well certainly, uh, certainly in more medium term, if we have more sites assembled for social housing, that would allow us to, to have a pipeline of, of sites to develop over the next two or three years. That's the limitation we have at the moment. We certainly, if we had more sites, we think that's the key driver. And in the past, in fairness to a number of local authorities, assembled sites in, in Dublin, for instance, for, for housing association. And that was a real trigger for allowing the sector to expand from maybe 5,000 homes to 30,000 over the last 30 years. <clears throat> so the delivery of, of sites assembled, ready-to-go sites, we think would be a key driver in increasing our capacity as, as a sector. <clears throat> like there are other issues in, in relation to purchasing properties at the moment. Since about 2011, because of the downturn in the housing market, housing associations have focused very much on uh, acquiring properties on the private market and using uh, private finance for that. And roughly about 1,000 homes have been provided in that period. Now, it has been difficult you know, to try and navigate yourself through the private market to acquire houses, but it has been has been productive. And actually on that, one of your members, Tua, uh, did just that. They bought 68 homes in Thornwood, which was a development nearing completion in Bowman. The developer couldn't complete it, so Tua did. Um, but the people in the neighbouring housing estate have objected, saying that it's not fair that all these houses were bought and are going to have social housing tenants and they're afraid of antisocial behaviour. Um, is that a common reaction when you well, try to uh, develop these pl- houses? Well, I have to say it's not always common. But I saw some of the comments last year were published in one of the newspapers about some of the claims that you know high concentration of social housing is associated with antisocial behaviour. <clears throat> I have to say, in, in recent years where housing associations have acquired maybe uh, 30 years throughout the country, there hasn't been that adverse reaction in France. Uh, even local elected members have supported that to happen. Like you will always get people who have uh, issues, maybe in relation to socialising or other housing, but certainly we haven't got that across the board. I have to say it's very unfortunate now that we have a national policy that's trying to promote uh, social and private housing, but especially social housing. And maybe at local level we don't have that sort of leadership sometimes in relation to that. So uh, uh, by and large... You know, housing associations have went down and acquired properties at their own risk as well because they're bringing forward uh, loan finance. But I have to say, uh, over the last three or four years, uh, the sector hasn't got uh, that adverse uh, reaction across the board. And see, even in the article last week, there was balanced views of some people saying, well, people have the right to live. The government policy is to allow people to live in their own community. Uh, but, but certainly, we would be concerned if the national policy and all the cons- so-called consensus from various political parties and independents is to promote socialising, yet at local level, there, there's isn't the sort of necessary leadership to promote that. So that's okay. one thing we'd be concerned about. OK, Donald, thanks a million for shedding light on that. So, um, so Dermot Lacey, what I'm hearing so far really about the public housing is, um, first of all, 
the housing lists are inflated, okay? Um, by because you have to be on it for rent allowance and there seems to be people on it who just don't actually need a house. Um, the <coughs> issue of boarding up houses isn't as bad as you would think from the media. You know, uh, like I know in Mead County Council where Tom Stokes moved into that house in Navan, um, they only have 42 units vacant out of 3,100 social houses. So that problem seems to be exaggerated. So... Is there much more the councils could actually be doing with the money that they have? Yeah, there's a couple of things. And just in response to Donal, I'm actually a member of a board of a voluntary housing association and I actually established another one. And, you know, one of the models he didn't refer to is this is the one I established where we established a housing association. We built homes and we actually sold them to people at affordable at affordable rates. And that's a possibility. And the gain was that the city council supplied the land and all of the people who purchased the houses either had to come from the waiting list or come from existing uh, city council uh, housing. So it freed up additional units. So there's, there's a number of different ways you can tackle this. So housing associations can also be providers of houses to buy as well as... What they, about as, the as massive rent. cost of maintaining social houses? Meath County pa- Council spent two million last year <coughs> well, I uh, think, doing yeah. up houses. I, th- I think there is an issue of dependency. I grew up in a, a city council home and I never, and I lived there until I was 30. I was, should have left long ago, but I lived there until I was 30. And I never, ever, ever remember my parents calling Dublin City Council out to do a single solitary job to the house. Because as far as my parents were concerned, it was their home, it was their responsibility. And there has, a certain dependency has arisen in recent years. And that is part of the problem of our clientless political system. Now to get back to answer the, the, the question yeah. that you did ask, there was a lot of voids over the years and part of those empty flats in, in, in Dublin and part of that was due to the collapse of the public-private partnerships that, that had occurred and the lack of overall funding. I attended a meeting with Alan Kelly and Dublin City Manager recently and all of the political parties were there. And the city manager asked for the funding to do up the voids. And in front of everybody, the minister said, you can have whatever funding you need to do all of them. So that wasn't, that wasn't, that wasn't... You know what I'm saying? Oh, Alan Kelly, oh, I don't know that oh, he was... Oh, oh, I, was at, I, was, I was at the meeting. And, you know, at the, the end, at the beginning of last year in my area, in the electoral area that I represent, there were 1,100 uh, empty flats. On the 31st of December, there were 194 of those left. Uh, 900 and whatever yeah. had, had been done during that year. There was a huge problem in the previous sort of 10 to 15 years about money being put into social housing. It has begun to happen again. There's approximately about 500 media, units under construction. Do you think the media area. is completely failing to give credit and then uh, leverages these individual cases like Jonathan Corrie? You know, they basically said that Enda Kenny killed him. You no, know? I, think, I think it's right for the media to report on the, the deficiencies in our society, the inequalities in our society. But I think the media also has a duty to highlight the, the reasons that lead to that inequality, the reasons that led to the lack of housing. I don't recall any major media programme over the, the previous 15 years highlighting the failure to build social housing and to provide affordable housing. When councillors all over the country were screaming about it, I was the only person that I know of who totally opposed 
the establishment of the so-called Affordable Housing Partnership. The Affordable Housing Partnership was a con job during social partnership years, which led to developers getting state-owned land in return for building uh, social units in areas where people didn't want to live. So we got that mix match so that both sides of social partnership could say, under our agreement, we've delivered 10, 12, 15,000 housing units. And that was a failure of the media to report what led to the problem. I have no problem with them, with them reporting today's failures, and it's people like me, my job to try and tackle those. But we do have problems, and let's tackle them. Lark, you in, want to... Yeah, in, in relation to the media, the media are, are guilty of one thing here, and they conflate homelessness and rough sleeping. So you'll, you'll have a story about homelessness and on the picture, on the front of the paper, will be a picture of some poor individual sleeping in a doorway. They are two separate things. We have, I have crunched the numbers in this, we have one of the lowest levels of rough sleeping in Europe. We're, we're not too bad at most of the rough sleepers that are out there. Their issues are nothing to do with housing. They have all mm. sorts of other issues. But it, it does strike me that the media will typically use a picture of some, some poor guy or woman sleeping on a bridge or in a doorway and the, the, the story is actually about people living in a and b Two different things. So the media are guilty on, on that front. The key issue about voids uh, is an interesting one. Last year the government or, or, or local authorities turned around 2,696 voided units. Okay, That means we have a problem. There was a lot of units that are uh, closed up that shouldn't be. But the key issue isn't voids, it's the turnaround time. The amount of time it takes a local authority when it, when one uh, <coughs> tenants leave to turn it around. The last figures that I have seen, uh, places like Galway County Council were taking over fifty two weeks to turn around an empty unit. Now the, the the urban local authorities are much better at it because they have more units. To do yeah, Mead, Mead say they take fifteen weeks, and that's the that's, eighth fastest yeah, in the country. Yeah, and that's not yeah. too bad. But you're, when you're looking at over a year, and Galway weren't the only ones. And why is that? What's well, taking I'll, I'll them so long? I'll give you one example. Do they just not have the money to do no, it? Not is that no, is that it? Some of it is poor management. To be perfectly frank with you. Uh, and it's very rarely that that gets acknowledged on, uh, on the public airways, but it's poor management in local authorities. But also you have issues whereby if, if a team of, of maintenance guys go into a house to refurbish it and they'll see that the person has put in maybe a new socket or something, no, the whole lot has to be rewired because God only knows what else they did. And sure, there we go, there's weeks more time taken and expense rewired and in a new kitchen in. Totally unnecessary. A lot of that is totally unnecessary, very expensive and very time consuming. Uh, you know, we can't afford to have that in terms of time or money. Um, so, you know, we're, we're kind of, we're, we're over um, overdoing ourselves here. Uh, but it's a disgrace that it takes a county council over 52 weeks to turn around an empty house. I could but do that's it myself back quicker. to departmental control, Sarah. Part of the problem is that tenants go into a flat or a house. They do it up the way most people want to live. And then they move out and they go on somewhere else. And then the council comes in and they have to apply the department lay down standards to those particular flats. So they rip out the doors that the people have put in. They rip out the breakfast counter that people have put in. They change the kitchen back back to where it should be. And then what happens? The new people come in and they restore it to the way the previous person had it. It it's, it's, It's another example of where we just need to stop the interference by civil servants in things they actually know nothing about. Yeah, it's a, it is another example, in fairness, of the department. And I hate having a go with them all the time, but they have done I have more. No problem to, doing that. I know you don't. I'm not a, I'm not a politician. <laughs> the, 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 the department have done more to hinder uh, development in the private and social sector in the last few years than they have done to help it. There is a litany of examples where the department have given poor advice. And this is one of the reasons that I would be very reluctant to recommend a new minister or a new dedicated ministry for housing. Because A, if you set up a new department, it takes a year or two for all that to transfer mm. and to get set up and head a notepaper and all that kind of stuff and to get embedded in it. And also, I mean, you've got to remember the next Minister for Housing might well be a school teacher who knows very little about housing. 
you know, or a full-time politician, which means they're going to know even less. And they go in there as a minister. And so who do they rely on? Their advisors. Would you support some kind of, Carl, I'll put this to you, housing czar. You know the way they do this in the UK, uh, who's got some kind of powers... Uh, that could change all those rules in the environment. <coughs> you probably need special legislation or something. It's probably just undoable. Just is give it? the job back to the council. Give it to Lurkin. Oh, give it back to the council. Give it back to the council. I like, I like we that did idea. It. We <laughs> did it for 60 years. We actually tackled the problems to a large extent. We provided the Marinos, the Walking Sands, the Crumlins, the Bally Permits, the estate I live in myself. We did it. Yeah. Let us do it again. Carl. There's, there's a bit of a, a golden era fallacy around the idea that councils you know, solved all these problems. For a start, you have to bear in mind that we had an anti-tenement uh, movement that was huge because of the condition that housing got into. And there was a point in time where land was very cheap, labour was exceptionally cheap. If you look at your average council house, it was a concrete poured, uh, very sturdy building, no insulation, no central heating, no double glazing, no anything. They were built exceptionally cheap and they've been upgraded over time. So the council house you see today, say in Cabra or wherever, it's not the same as what was built. The price of land is not the same. The price of labour and everything has changed and moved on. If we're going to have a sincere talk about housing, I don't really care where the housing supply comes from. If someone can show a cheaper way of doing it that is that is effective and up to standards, then I don't care if it's the councils, if it's some sovereign wealth fund, or if it's the man on the moon. But what we need to do is get beyond this idea that state <coughs> is good, private is bad, private is good, state is bad, and just really say, what are the core components of what we need? The core component of housing for a start is land. The state and public and local authorities hold huge tracts of land. They don't I even think know, Carl, they don't even know how much land they have. They have no register of the well, total amount of state land. Th- there's the ESRI uh, vacant site map, and I've actually identified several places in Dublin city centre that aren't on that map. So they, their attempt to even find out what they have is also is badly, is badly founded. I think that we need to aggressively tax land all around the country that a site value tax or a land value tax would be a way of promoting better usage and that that should also apply to the state and that they could give up huge tracts of land for housing. But here's here's where the magic comes and I'm going to talk about this in the, in the planning conference that's coming up this week. If local authorities were given the opportunity to say, look, we have you know sites here, here and here and what we believe is best for that is this type of development in these different places. They could go forward, they could give outline planning permission for, for something along the lines of what they believe is required. And then one day, early next year, having done all of the, the groundwork for it, we could let tenders go out for thousands of thousands of different construction projects. And people would be bidding and whoever couldn't come in and deliver it at the, at, at the most competitive price who has the capacity to do it could be the one who wins and then goes forward and develops that. Now, if you give them the land for free, and it's kind of what Dermot has been talking about in his housing association mm. approach, you could give them the site for free, waiver the contributions because the local authority will then be getting local <coughs> property tax once it's completed. There'll be a huge amount of income from the construction activity. There'll be VAT. There'll be all these other things. And then what you could do is get very low-cost rental. And really what you do then is work on providing differential rent assistance, uh, something that I suppose the house, house assistant, housing assistance payment, the HAP program is, is, is trying to do at the moment where people could actually work and still get the supports. And really what you're trying to do overall is suppress the cost of housing because the higher the cost of housing, the worse off it is for the country. So I've had a brainwave. Uh, the next Taoiseach appoints Lurkin to the Senate 
And then from there makes him the Minister for the Environment and then you get to solve all these problems. What do you think about that? Well, the first thing I would do, because I, I wouldn't be arrogant enough to think <laughs> that doable. I could... I wouldn't be arrogant enough to think that I could solve all the problems. But what I would like to do if that was to happen, I, was, I would pull a team of about six people around me from different, uh, you know, parts of sectors because I wouldn't think that I know it all and I definitely wouldn't be relying on the department to, to, to help me. I would rely on the department to implement what I decided to do but I would be pulling a team of people around from various sources to advise me because you can't be arrogant enough to think that you know it all. I mean, you know bits and pieces about a whole lot of things. But there are, there are lots of great... This is the thing that really gets me about Housing Ireland. There are so many great ideas out there. You know, and the, the department had their social housing clearing clearing group. That was a disaster. Absolute Actually, disaster. We, and what nothing, was that? nothing came through. It was, that. A, it was a group of of experts from the department who who when people could come in with their ideas for delivering social housing, and they got received loads of those ideas, and yet none of them, absolutely none of them, were viable somehow. We, now, to me, that that was a total uh, a total waste of time and money. But the, the problem is, <coughs> there are loads of great ideas out there: temporal ownership, all sorts of things, affordable rental, and none of them are being implemented. And that can is can I tell really, you about really a real strange. life project though? I found a site uh, in Dublin too, just right near the Liffey. It's been vacant for over 40 years. So I met up with some architects, open architects in Dublin 4. They drew up some great plans for the place. Really interesting. Uh, I did the financial mix on it and the the financial appraisal, and we could provide 75% of the homes that would be built at 75% of the open market value. And we had a German funder who was going to do it all. We went to Dublin City Council and we said, look, this can be done. If we can get access to that site, we can do this project. And they said, look, it's not that we don't agree with it and we like it and we think what you're saying is really interesting. The numbers work, everything works, but we can't. And I'll tell you why. It's because there's different sets of regulations, rules, and things that have to be followed. And really what would happen is they would have to put this whole thing out to tender. And then with our project and all the sunk cost and work that went into it, we would have to tender for the idea that we came up with. And it's those kinds of reversals of logic flow well, that's an that, EU that, that stop a lot of things from occurring. That's an EU... Uh, you know, if it's over 5.185 million, so the trick is to keep it below 5, 5 well, that's million. That's what Kelly did with, with modular and housing, he did. but didn't. You didn't, know what? Yeah. I have to take another break. So Lurkin, you hold that thought. And I'm going to come back to Dermot on that point too. So we'll be back after these. Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108. And welcome back to Talking Point. We're talking about housing this morning. In studio, Lurkin Sir, lecturer in housing at DIT, Carl Dieters from the Irish Mortgage Brokers, and Dermot Lacey is a Dublin City Labour Party councillor. Carl, I want to go back to you. We've been focusing a lot on public housing, but of course, private supply is the big problem. For all those people who are renting houses, especially in Dublin, at a crazy rent that they're having to pay, how do we get more private houses built? That would relieve pressure on public housing. I think the uh, the idea that I was mentioning where you could free up land, I've actually been part of a project that's been following possession hearings in the courts and we've mm. covered thousands of them. Uh, you know, we have only seen two cases where people got repossessed when they showed up in courts and the majority of people who get repossessed, they're making zero payments, they're not engaging with the banks. But the interesting thing, I think, is that a huge amount of these properties are actually vacant. So we have thousands of vacant houses they can't be supplied. Do you think are they, the by, are they by toilets maybe? By toilets and people who have left, abandoned, moved on, you know, moved in with relatives, whatever they've done. And but, uh, but they're not showing up in court. They're making zero payments and there's nobody there. And they're actually starting to, to fall apart or, or, or get degraded through the, through the passage of time. You could actually fix homelessness in the morning if we just repossessed all the empty houses. And no one talks about that. So I think that's an important thing that we, 
that needs to be on the table as well, that mm-hmm. this idea that every repossession is like the worst thing in the world, if you're going to pay zero, if you're not going to show up in court, if you're not going to engage with the bank or do anything, I think that you waiver your right to five years of protection, which is about how long it and, takes. And on that, we constantly see these headlines in the papers, 7,000 repossession orders sought, and it makes it look like there's been 7,000 evictions. No, but absolutely you, not. But your studies show there's been a huge gap. There, not only that, not only does, does repossession... Or, or orders not translate into repossessions, but even repossessions don't translate into repossessions because a huge amount of the cases get struck out. In other words, once they get brought to court, the people start to engage, pay, find some kind of resolution. In the cases where there's repossessions happening, like I said, the majority of them, I think in the 130 that we had observed, it was upwards of 118. There was no one there. They didn't bother. There was no engagement, no nothing. Uh, then you've also got the fact that when you get a repossession order, you can still engage with the bank because they have to get what's called an execution order. And I, t- I spoke to Dublin City Sheriff and I took their figures over the last five years. And what's really fascinating is that the biggest evictor up until last year was actually Dublin City Council. Uh, the banks weren't doing shag all. And in fact, when they get an eviction order, quite often that gets cancelled because at that last, utter last hurdle, the person then says, look, I'll, I'll, I'll strike a deal because no one wants to be in the eviction business. So there's a, a lot of supply that is locked up in the, in the legal process, and that's wrong, and it's a mistake because it's, it's sitting there idle. But after that, I think that taxing land, and not the site value tax that we're talking about getting, which has like a million ways around it. Uh, I th- I'm saying like tax all land. I think we need to compulsory purchase order some lands. Mm. And that's something yeah. that we, we really don't discuss. Lurkin, yeah, do the, the CPO thing, Carly, when I heard uh, Minister Kelly last week hiding behind the constitution, for to to excuse his uh, inaction, he had behind anything. And he was a disgrace. Uh, you know, to use the constitution like that and say there's nothing I could do. My hands were tied by the constitution. That that is totally false. The ninth progress report of the All Party Oireachtas Committee on the constitution in 2004 came out and said this is not an issue where property private property rights are concerned. We could CPO land all over the place, Carl, and free up land if we needed to do it. But uh, we we seem reluctant to do it. Uh, and the department themselves have used that 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 excuse before for for inaction, and it's time to bury that canard. That's just you know it's a, it's a non-runner. You can CPO land if you want, and the state can do it. They need a specific plan. They just can't CPO land for no good reason. They need to have a plan yeah. in place, and but they can it can be done. Dermot, it seems to me that there's so much that could be done if there was a political will, mainly to beat the own the civil servants and the officials. Yeah, I would love know. Ireland to elect a progressive left-wing social democratic uh, government but majority. But the reality, but the reality <laughs> is, we elect about 100 and you know 30 TDs who are on the right of centre. Uh, can I just we say elect- that no, no, housing no, is Carl, not left or right? Carl, Don't Carl, deduce it Carl, to that. Carl, if we could keep Carl, this ideology Carl, free, it'd be Carl, so nice. I actually listened to you and I didn't interrupt. The reality is that, you know, politicians make decisions in Dáil Éireann based on their political views. Now, the majority of politicians in Dáil Éireann do believe that land should be protected. I don't. I would support more compulsory purchase orders. I would support a stronger uh, value uh, la- land tax. I would support more intervention in the housing market. But that is not the view, unfortunately. No, let me finish. On Dublin City Council recently, the city manager came forward with some of the proposals that you were making in relation to, you know, designating land and having mixed uh, uh, developers doing it and so forth. I voted for that. But the people on the city council who shout loudest about housing all opposed it because they only saw housing in narrow ideological uh, lines and they only saw that you could provide housing through one particular model. I support 
having a pragmatic approach. And I'm not adopting an ideological approach, Carl, but the reality is a majority of TDs elected to Dáil Éireann do take that ideological approach. And a final comment, to suggest that Alan Kelly was A, doing nothing, or B, hiding behind the Constitution, for the minister who delivered a cabinet agreement on the largest ever investment in social housing in the history of the state is a little bit rich to, to say. You cannot deliver the housing units that he provided the funding for through the taxpayer, you know, overnight. There's about 500 units okay. being built in my I area at the moment. The, the only know. thing that was bigger than that fund was the number of times he reminded us about <laughs> it. That fund has gone nowhere. Well, the reality is, Carl, he had, to persuade, he had to persuade very right-wing ministers to allocate that funding. <laughs> okay, okay, well, I don't know, Lurkin. Labour, Social Democrats, AAA, PPP, Sinn Féin, there were actually plenty left. Can I name drop without mentioning names? Last year, I had dinner with a minister. It just happened to be at the same table as the person it was very interesting and I mentioned the fact that 28% of TDs are landlords in the current government oh, yeah. and and, uh, and including a lot of ministers and he said yes and you can tell that when you sit around the cabinet table. Right. So that, that I thought that was a very interesting insight into what goes on uh, at, at the very high levels of government. In Perhaps we will leave that as the final observation then on our discussion. Many thanks to all my guests Lurkin Sir, Carl Dieter and Dermot Lacey. Bobby Carr is up next you for being produced. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this Newstalk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.